0: Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckel.
1: I'm James Ward. So, prep. We need to prep for our book. Yeah. <laughs> trying so out the new acronym.
0: Trying. Okay. And so, what's the new acronym?
1: <laughs> uh, what is it? Product? No. Um, performant. Yes. Reliable. Uh
0: huh.
1: Expressive. Yes. And productive. Yeah. That's what our book is going to be about. I think so. Yeah. I think that that
0: works. <laughs> And it's a, it's an acronym so people can then start referring to it as if it were not just a made up thing. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, we we follow the prep uh methodology, methodology or, or whatever. <laughs> yes. Well, and um yeah, we need to figure out expensive certification for it. Yes. That that will be, be prep our, certified. That'll be our business model. <laughs> his his certification because uh, uh, historically, yeah. yeah. Mm, yeah. gotta have the badge gotta have the badge it's, yes
1: uh i've been reading um the dr seuss stars upon thars book a lot with the kids and there's a lot of culture that revolves around stars having yeah, stars it's true you know and then the people who create the uh what was his name um uh shoot uh, the guy that created the machine to the star on and star off machine and makes all the money just putting stars on the, the, Man. with the stars, the people who don't have stars, the sneetches who don't have stars. And then, then of course the ones with stars are really offended. And so then he has them pay to, to get the star off machine so they can still be special. And then it just becomes this infinite loop of star on star off. But I'm like, who, who man, this, this visionary. is visionary. Visionary on exactly because exactly. I work. mean,
0: isn't this isn't this how the Scrum stuff works?
1: It's how everything how everything works. Scrum
0: Master. Well, yeah. When Java initially came out, they they had their various levels of of Java. Um, oh, yeah. certification. Which you, you you know, there were people who were convinced that they needed Java certification.
1: Yeah. Oh, and here's what's wild: is Sun also at that time had a methodology that you could get certified in that was called the star methodology oh my gosh (laughs) named after dr seuss (laughs) yeah sneeches yeah (laughs) sneeches well that's true we could just pay your money and get your star on yeah that's right okay the only thing that doesn't quite work is that no one ever pays to get the star off we just pay for more stars we pay for more stars and is there
0: some way we could mix the nft craze into this you
1: Oh yeah, definitely. If we could yeah. figure out how to, how to do NFTs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh,
0: we <laughs> we could just draw each star by hand and then take a picture of it. Yeah,
1: yeah actually. Uh, so we were actually, um, <laughs> it was kind of joking around, but kind of not, I have this microservice battle thing that I've been doing for customers and stuff where it's mm-hmm. just a fun way to like learn some technology and you work on your algorithm and you have these microservices that fight against each other. And because we originally started doing these in person, we did one at winter tech forum last year. Mm -hmm. And um, it's fun. And in person, you can do physical rewards for the winners and and all that. Uh, And at conferences, we were doing giveaways and um, and that worked well. But now that we are all virtual for these microservice battles, it it's been hard to do the physical giveaways for the winners. And so so at some point we're like, what if we gave away NFTs as the prizes? It's like the conference, the new conference swag for these virtual conferences could be NFTs and yeah. And you um, don't have to stuff bags that way. That's, that's right. It, yeah, it's very ecological. You
0: wouldn't even have bags.
1: That's right. Well, you could have an NFT of a bag. uh huh, And a t-shirt. Yeah, yeah. And you, here's your NFT of a t-shirt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's silly. Is it just a new kind of currency maybe? Um it's a new it's a new star you can wear. You uh-huh. can go through the star on machine and get your star and uh-huh. and that makes you feel good. Yes. Well, I'm I'm all about feeling good. Yeah. I like yeah, them. and I guess maybe the maybe the promise is that that if you did want to resell your star to someone else, you could do that where in the sneeches you know they got their stars on, but they couldn't transfer. Them. they were like tattooed or something this is ingenious mm-hmm. The stars for sneakches, but that you can have a marketplace around
0: we're uh looking for venture capital on this idea yeah this is this is where we go independent, yeah, so back to <laughs> prep and yes. uh, yeah what what's what's the uh what's the origin of this? This is just some crazy idea that came into your head, and you go,
1: it's got to have an acronym, and you know, well, because we we started the book mm-hmm. around like, why, why is Scala 3 and Zio awesome? We're like, oh, easier reliability. And then we are like, well, yeah, reliability and performance. Like, yep, okay. We got the R and the P. But then I was like, productivity is really part of this triangle because, yeah, you can have reliability and send something to Mars and that's great. But hopefully we can make that better. A productive experience as well mm-hmm. and i think that that's one of the things that scholar three and zero really shine shine on is the productivity in balanced with the product with productivity balanced with reliability and performance and so we've got the r and the p and the p and i was like we need a good acronym because everything has to have a good acronym well you
0: need a vowel
1: we need a vowel yeah yeah and so um so then i was like well P, R, P, if we threw like a vowel after the R, you know, and I went through all the vowels and I was like E prep, but what does the E mean? And so I was trying to think of good things that kind of related with an E. And so I was like, I don't know, expressive, but that's just, I don't know if there may be a better E or maybe we don't need it E because this is all just manufactured silliness anyways.
0: Yeah. But it looked better on the badge.
1: Yeah, I mean, we could print stars with P R E P. And that's, yeah, definitely looks better than P R uh-huh. P. Because P R P kind of sounds like a drug or something. It does. It sounds like PCP. Yeah.
0: And the, or it could be P R O P. Like, well, you could have, we could throw objects in there. Ooh. Or ROP. Or ROP, yes. Well, <laughs> and that's, it's interesting because this article that you. Um, ROP. Oh, wait, no, No, it's it's been taken. (sighs) Yeah. And uh, does Rational even exist anymore? It's just a subset of IBM, right? The RUP is the Rational
1: Unified Process, which is way back. I don't know if anybody actually still uses it, but. Uh, There was some interesting articles on Hacker News this week about UML. And so I was thinking about, like, I'd forgotten about UML for like Mm -hmm. a decade. And then all of a sudden I was like, whoa we used to do UML. Does anybody still though? do UML?
0: Did we though? Or were I've we got just the sc- sequence
1: diagrams to prove it. Yeah. It's
0: funny. Cause um, it seems like most people talk about things like sequence di- diagrams, but not what started UML, which was how do we describe objects? Yeah. You know,
1: and so yeah, relationships and, and there the were,
0: yeah, I think this is worth going over. I mean, to me, it doesn't seem like such ancient history, but there were like pitched battles at conferences about whether your
1: objects should be represented by clouds or by boxes. Diamonds or wow. Serious yeah, no, it was like,
0: that. it was like people were, people would fight over this and you had um, the, the people who eventually got, co- uh, you know, combined into the rational unified process. They were fighting against each other about.
1: Th- it was the Ruppers versus the. Well, or it was, well, know. it was
0: basically boxes versus clouds. And this was really important because this was going to establish the future of how we, you know, draw
1: forever, update, forever. And then it turned out no one used <laughs> it.
0: No one used it anyway. It was, it was, they were solving a problem that didn't need to be solved. And they were just like,
1: how many times does this happen in our industry? This used. was, this was the first time battles, never happened. battles over things that end up, well, and then in the way. 90s, we had
0: the um, AI revolution. Believe <laughs> it or not, AI was invented way earlier than now. It's just that it didn't work then. Yeah, And it became a complete marketing thing. It yeah. was just, it was all, you know, people were getting excited about it. I'm going, I'm not sure what you're selling. I have not actually, this is why I'm very suspicious of the um, the low-code, no-code stuff. Yeah. is because it was like, until I get my hands on it and see how it works... It sounds like a marketing ploy and that happens, you know, we, it's, it's like the Ponzi schemes that regularly go through various populations Yeah, and, you know, time will pass, it'll settle down and then somebody get all excited. Oh, you can make a lot of money if you get your neighbors to buy products and stick them in their garages and then you you know it's it's like no this is a ponzi scheme they don't know what it is yeah just enough time has passed it's no
1: wonder that developers are so like just any kind of marketing they have such a good radar for and they're so hesitant to trust anything that comes in a marketing most of the time
0: it's just what's the lies? Yeah. Lies. That's the word I was looking for. (laughs) It is just lies because their incentive is not to come up with really good technology. It's to make a lot of money fast. Yeah. And that's, yeah. So, and it's not even, I mean, technically marketing is finding out what the customer wants. So what we're really talking about is sales here. We're just talking about,
1: yeah, well, I think marketing has been construed into yes. uh, lead generation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's all that it matters is get us some leads. Steak knives or the Cadillac. Yeah, yeah. so anyways, um, I'm excited about prep because okay. um, I'm going to do some marketing here because right. uh, it's going to be amazing. going to change how people build software. It's going to solve all of your problems. All of them every single one that's yep. right it is the first silver bullet in technology mm-hmm. the 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 first honest silver bullet that's right <laughs> yep now it's it's going to be fun we're we're having fun we just had a, a book working sesh last week or on tuesday mm-hmm. and bill and bruce and i and we were exploring the difference between functions and monads and grappling with with Okay, what is what is unique about monads because functions compose, monads compose. What's the what what makes monads different and unique? And we're still kind of wrestling with explaining that in a value oriented way.
0: Well, and also we're struggling with whether um mathematical function composition where you say F of G of of H, you know, where they're all inside of parentheses, um, versus function chaining. So you'd say, you know, call F, it produces a result, you pass it to G, well, or actually, if we were to do it in the way we describe it, you call H first. Yeah. H passes its result to G, which passes its result to F, and you get the result coming out. It's like, boy, those sure seem pretty similar. Is there... Any fundamental difference, or are we um, is function composition the same whether you're chaining or yeah. math, quote unquote, mathematically composing?
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, I suppose, well, even if you think of it in terms of, well, consider the result another function, which is what you do mathematically, you'd say.
1: Oh, that's true. If you do H, then g then f the result is not a value it's a function that takes the input mm-hmm. of h and yeah
0: if if you're doing it that way but yeah. but if you chain them together you know you can assign the result to a function that takes the input runs it through the chain right. and produces the output so yeah. is it really you know that different yeah. and in both cases i think if you're um well i'm still learning about
1: one of the interesting things along these lines this is a bit of a tangent but one of the places where i use that function composition where i just i i don't do it as um f then g then h um instead i actually create a new function so one of the reasons why i do this is because i do it with taking specific parameters out of that kind of chain and pulling them out to the to the function that I'm creating. And so, so then I can kind of pick which, where I put the holes, like which holes I expose in my outer function. And so mm-hmm. that's one of the places where I use this. I think that that's part of currying or related to currying, cause you can create new functions by taking parameters kind of and pulling them out. Mm-hmm, right. So that's one of the useful places where I've yeah. used the, uh, function then function then and i guess my of. question is
0: when thinking about monads is there a difference between let's say mathematical function composition and chaining and maybe maybe there is maybe there isn't i don't know you know i'm still i'm still getting the i mean like just what you told me this morning where you said cuz i i had been imagining regardless that you have a function; it produces a monad. That monad is passed to another function, which does something to it, and so it's passing the monads down. And you're telling me, "Oh no, that's not how it works."
1: Yeah, yeah. You you have a monad, and when you when you chain that monad to another monad, what you're doing is you're you're in the flat map of the monad. You're returning another monad, and that's the that's how it's different i think than than function chaining so what that means is that like once you're in monads you stay in monads you can't leave the world of monads at least in a nice way you can transform from one monad monadic type to another monadic type but well and at some point you're going to want to get the value that the monad is holding well you and you do that um you do that with flat map or whatever you want to call your, your monad, um, functor, um, the function that, that takes the value and returns a new monad. Isn't that always flat map? Uh, other languages have different names. Oh, okay. In Scala it's flat map. Okay.
0: Okay. Well, yeah. yeah, I, I wonder if drawing a diagram might be, and I know I've seen people try and draw diagrams that just confuse me. Yeah. But i bet there's the category theory diagrams (laughs) that would would confuse me and i've seen the the what is it the parallel track or railroad or something diagram yeah also confuses me but i'll bet if we worked on it we could yeah figure out a diagram where it started to make sense
1: yeah 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 i'll keep exploring and this will be good content in our book once we figure out a way to explain it. Fortunately I maintain beginner's mind about all of this.
0: So I keep asking the the very basic questions, slowly fitting pieces in. Yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll figure it out. Yes, we will solve the And then we'll get our prep badge. Yes. Right. <laughs> should I should I have the designer start working on that?
1: The prep badge? Can you give it to us as an M- NFT? Probably. But then doesn't that mean there's only one? Well, but can you create NFTs uh, that are replications of NFTs? It's just NFTs all the way down. It's like monads. Yes. So I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. So um, so I decided
0: to, I was going to give a presentation at the uh, craft conference, which is in Budapest. And several years ago, I, they brought me over to speak and it was very nice. And so I did want to give this presentation, but it's just been fighting me the whole way. And and, um, what was the presentation going to be? So the presentation was going to be called Java and the death of a thousand cuts. And it was going to be pointing out how all of these features that have been added to Java for the last, I mean, I don't know when you would consider it starting, probably Java 8, you know, the the, well, yeah, certainly Lambdas, for example. Um, Because, I mean, Lambdas are cool, but then they have their weird limitations. There's things you can't do with Lambdas that you would have expected to be able to do it if you had come from other languages. And suddenly you've got these hacks that you have to do in order to make your code work. And when you look at it, it doesn't make any sense. Why did you, why did you take this particular item and have to externalize it from the Lambda, for example? And, um, and then you have to go, oh yeah, I remember because Java is limited in this way in their implementation of Lambdas. And there are things like, uh, well, a very simple example is uh, override the override annotation, there's no real enforcement for that. Right. So, and, um, and the upcoming um, record, um, the last I checked, it didn't have a copy function, which seems pretty essential. So there are all these things where it's like, it's sort of there. Yeah. But then it's missing a feature, which makes it kind of weird and awkward to use. Yeah. If you're, uh, you know, aware of what that feature is. And so my argument was going to be, Well, and look, Kotlin does all these things, but in a regular expected way without the funky things that they had to do in Java to 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 fit the feature in. And so my thesis was going to be, so you should just continue using the Java features you have. And if you really want to move forward and use fancier new features, you should change to Kotlin. Sounded really good in my head. Yeah. And um, I think it was Bill pointed out, he goes, yeah, I've worked at places where people uh, were really excited about those features and, you know, improved their lives and they didn't have to change languages because it was too hard politically, et cetera, et cetera. So I started thinking about that and going, you know, why? what does it help to rain on somebody's parade like this? It's like, right. you're excited about these new features. And I go, well, it's actually not that great. Wrong. You know? <laughs> Wrong. You should use Kotlin. I was like, I don't know. I'm kind of I'm kind of over. I've been pointing out the issues in Java. You know, the thingy in Java is filled with explanations about why something doesn't work the way you expect and how to get around it. And I was like, just kind of tired of all that.
1: Yeah. So
0: I just didn't have my heart in it. Yeah. And I couldn't think of any. I mean, the only other thing that I'm really been kind of working on for a while is uh, dealing with failure and just looking at the history of that and all the different things that we've done. I did a presentation, I don't know how long ago, probably eight years ago at uh, PyCon Uh where I was talking about it, but it was sort of incomplete. And I realized there's much more about failure and dealing with failure and all the different approaches that we've taken. But that's still formative until I have a really good understanding of monads. I think I'm not going to have a full grasp of the failure picture, so yeah. couldn't think of anything. So I wrote an apologetic message to the conference organizer and said, "I just I can't yeah. do this." And yeah, it was helpful. Yeah, it nice. was it was That's liberating. Yeah. yeah, so and I think when I do my final, which I imagine would be the next one after the On Java Eight book, my, my final coverage of Java, I'm just going to talk about how to use the features. I'm not going to talk about the broken stuff and the,
1: the, the stuff that, you know, just where they made show them the happy path and yes, don't exactly. show them, don't show them the thorny, uh, long, painful way that they could alternatively go.
0: Yeah. Or well, and they'll encounter that when they're maintaining the dreams <laughs> of existing Java code that's out there, they'll have to yeah. understand that. But I don't know. I just, I would rather just say, Yes, we use type inference everywhere, for example. Yeah. And uh and uh yes, we use records and yeah. Maybe you have to write your own copy function, but that's how it's how that just, how it works in Java. Just stay on the happy path. Yeah, kind mm-hmm. of. I don't know if I should it, it should I don't know if happy path Java is promising too much, but <laughs> uh yeah, anyway, that's what's in my yeah. head right now. Who knows uh, what, what'll actually happen. Yeah. I have also asked myself whether just continuing to write books is am I just doing it because that's the easy way to go? Mm. And maybe I could be doing something that's way more fulfilling. Yeah. And I don't, don't know the don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Besides we're working on this book and it's quite it's been quite pleasant so yeah, far. It's been fun. Yeah, definitely
1: uh you're this reminded me about i just heard in a meeting yesterday someone was saying that that i would be shocked by the number of java projects that use lombok but the actual like usage numbers of lombok are astronomical that anybody that's like really using java they've they've likely adopted lombok to work around some of the paper cuts that you get in java hmm. and i thought that was interesting i've heard others say like eh, yeah you could switch to kotlin or you could just use java with lombok and mm-hmm. i haven't personally used lombok mm-hmm. because i think around the time that lombok was becoming a thing i was on in scala so mm-hmm. i didn't need lombok but um thought that was interesting to think about okay like people have people have felt the cuts and they have figured out ways to deal with those, whether Lombok or or Kotlin. But when you say surprised,
0: I don't know if that means 10% of all the industrial Java projects out there. The hint was that it
1: was a large percentage. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I don't, it'd be interesting to get real usage numbers, but um, I mean, you could totally see it. If you, if you are using, if you have a large Java code base, Mm -hmm sure you could generate your getters and setters or you could just use lombok (laughs) Mm -hmm. well and it'll generate data classes for
0: you too right yeah yeah i mean that's got to be a fundamental thing yeah um yeah and i'm not sure how far it goes but yeah
1: so seems like like lombok is the kevlar to if you're in java it's the kevlar to shield you from those paper cuts like it's maybe the the easy way to do that
0: or is it even the original test bed for features that eventually go into Java?
1: Because,
0: yes. I mean, uh, records it could definitely for example,
1: be a lot of inspiration for. Yeah. I mean, figure that if it's getting usage in Lombok, then maybe it should uh-huh. just be part of the Java. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, it's. I wonder if their goal is to, to not be needed uh, with. There's some projects where the stated goal is to, to no longer exist. Mm -hmm. That's my web jars project, (laughs) which is now on seven years or something like that. Um, The, the goal of web jars is to, is to not be needed and to, to cease existing at some point. And, uh, and it, yeah, unfortunately, that is a laudable goal. Yeah. Yes. Uh, There are, there are some things that have made that goal, I think move further along uh jhipster makes it so you don't need web jars um and uh kotlin In kotlin the the um you know you can do kotlin js and Mm -hmm. write javascript stuff so they've got this npm integration that i just used for the first time recently where it'll pull npm modules in for you and and so again you don't need web jars which is great like like Mm -hmm all those web libraries you should be able to just pull from npm and um, not have to use web drivers but but so i wonder if lombok's like goal is to is to not be needed or maybe their goal is more keep pushing and and have parts of it that become standard in the language and so parts of it are no longer needed but yeah. but they keep cuz anything innovating. that makes
0: java programming easier is it benefits a huge number of programmers and yeah. companies you know makes people more what's that p word productive yeah well and you could argue for expressive as well yep. yeah yeah for sure so, yeah so i mean yeah something like that and what are, i think i would rather cuz i've always written as if java is all you have and i think that's a mindset left over from when i was working hmm. in c and c++ and the idea of a whole bunch of tool sets yeah. was not there. And now really you, there are there there is fundamental tooling that no sane person would want to work without.
1: Yep. That's and,
0: true. Um, so, you know, that that might be one of them. Yep. And there could be other things like um, I don't know, some some basic database stuff that rather than using JDBC
1: uh, yeah, uh, someday. Um, the only innovation really in that space is is uh, the reactive JDBC drivers, which mm-hmm. are all the rage right now, which is good. It's good to have reactive database drivers. Like that's mm-hmm. just, of course. Yeah. Um, but the actual databases still, at least relational databases still run SQL. And so, at some point, you have to get to SQL. You can make SQL easier to write. Um, You can abstract it so that you don't write the SQL generally, like Hibernate. Um, But yeah, I I haven't seen anything like. Oh, actually, I have Uh, Cloud State. Mm. Cloud State is a revolution. I would say a revolutionary model around uh, data data storage and distributed data. And queries on that data, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Classroom. And who makes that? Lightbend. The oh, really behind Akka and okay. Scala and all that. So,
0: okay,
1: yeah, they're they're doing some really interesting stuff with that. So um, is that Scala only? No. Uh, one of the coolest things they've done is they have made the interface to it Protobuf based, and oh. so it's they have a number of client libraries because all you have to do is generate the 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 stubs from the protos mm-hmm. and so i've used it in kotlin java javascript um i think they have a node or a, a go version so it's very easy for them to support other other languages um and what's the
0: model that you're imagining while you're manipulating this database it's it's,
1: it's very different
0: it's uh, not like an object relational map. no it's not you, an object oriented idea it's like what does it look like
1: uh, so in in cloud state it 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 really is a making cqrs easier so cqrs is command query response segregation okay and cqrs is one of it also makes event sourcing easier but i don't know a whole lot about event sourcing i've mostly used cqrs so uh so i'll talk mostly about that so in cqrs and event sourcing your source of truth is not your mutable database your source of truth is your event log hmm. and right. it's a it's a flip of the model from a it's traditional like database it's kind of the way elm works yeah yeah is is you've got you've got all these events and you can get to the truth by replaying all the events right and the way that you in these systems, you need some way to like query, okay, what is my current state? Mm-hmm. And so this is where the command query response segregation comes in is your commands are your events that are happening. And then what you do is you have a listener on that, that stream of logs that is doing filters, doing, you know, whatever you need to do to, to then per, get to the queried state that you, that you then need to use um, in some other place. And so cloud state makes this programming model easier for doing this so you you have a method a function that is receiving the events and you set up your your queries and in that that function or you can have multiple listener methods that are that are listening to the log and then and then cloud state is is maintaining a bunch of things underneath the covers for you um so one of the challenges with cqrs is that if you if for some reason an, an instance dies and you need to get back to your state, it can be really costly to go replay all the events in all of history to get back to your current state. So CQS systems typically will do snapshots. Mm-hmm. So you can say, all right, based on this point of time in the log, here's where I'm at, and start with that snapshot and then play forward from there. Sure. And so Cloud State just does that stuff for you to make it perform well. And, and you decide how often you want your snapshots. It is configurable. Oh, okay. And, yeah. and like the backing store for where those get stored uh-huh. is configurable. Yeah, that makes so sense because totally the event
0: is the smallest unit of change and not the not what we've typically translated it into, which is what change do I tell the database to make, but instead this yeah. inflow of events is more um uh, m- m- yeah, atomic.
1: Yeah, uh, well, and and on the distributed side of this, if you have a, a stateful mutable database, dealing with distribution of that database across mo- across more than one machine gets really hard. Mm. Really hard to do that right. And so, um, one approach is what Google does with Google Cloud does with Spanner and atomic clocks. To make sure that every machine knows exactly what time it is, and hmm. so that then you can have atomic, you know, incrementing whatever numbers to to get to your consistency, and so. The, Do I don't they know take much into about,
0: account the speed of light?
1: I'm sure. Well, so there is a window. So whenever you have a distributed database, mm-hmm. you have some like window of of uh, reconciliation. Okay. And so Google also has the super fast network around the world that runs these like synchronization events on so that they happen as fast as they possibly can. Uh, and, but then you still have to have this window of time that you're, that if you, you, you did the right over, over way over here in Australia, and you're doing a read in the United States, there's some amount of time that sure. those are going to be out of sync like mm-hmm. have to be because of the speed of light speed of light and the speed of computing yeah yeah and so so distributing distributing a a a mutable stateful database has a lot of challenges mm-hmm. whereas in the event stream based world it actually becomes a lot easier to have guarantees around when things are in sync and, and because you're not, all you have to do is wait for the, uh, as soon as the event arrives to an instance, your state is updated. Um, so it's, it's a much easier model to think about how that happens. And then there's something else called CRDTs that I don't really understand that are a core part of how you do ordering of distributed events and stuff. Mm. But Kafka is really one of the, the central technologies to um, this event logging kind of system. And I'm not an expert on any of this, but I've, I've dabbled and, and I, I think that there is something that is pretty revolutionary, revolutionarily different about this approach than mm-hmm. the typical SQL query model. But mm-hmm. anyways, that was an interesting tangent. Yeah.
0: Tangent from what, though?
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Tangent from uh, JDBC is where we started. <laughs> What's on our list? Um, we were going to talk about um, reliability yes. in terms of, of process, because right. our prep book mm-hmm. is going to talk about reliability in the programming model how we get better reliability from the programming model. But we we are going to, at the book, say we know that there are different ways to accomplish reliability. We're going to focus on the programming model side of that, mm-hmm. which I think has been the most neglected. neglected side of reliability. But there's been a lot of work on getting better reliability through process. Mm-hmm. And so, so we were thinking maybe today we should talk a little bit about uh, how process has made us more reliable over the years. Right, yeah, so I remember, I think this was um,
0: uh, Barry who introduced the, the idea that you couldn't do refactoring until you had um, automated builds, uh, testing and um, let's see what was the other one oh version control yeah version control and so those are like the three fundamental things but then I would add versioning I would add to say yeah you actually not only do you have to have version control but you actually have to have a reliable versioning system yeah. Yeah. so that you don't end up you know using the wrong piece of software yes <laughs> um. And then with those things, your software can evolve. Um, And I think refactor is a specific version of evolving because refactoring is like you're not changing the behavior of the code, but you're making it more maintainable. Right. And I think just in general, what we want to do is have a system where you can, you know, you can move forward, you can add features, you can refactor, you can do whatever. And your system may, remains reliable. Yeah, and there might there might be other factors that um, feed into reliability. Maybe some of the stuff that the the agile folks have brought up, just in terms of how you communicate about hmm. how your um, system is going to evolve,
1: because that's yeah. mostly the focus with agile. At at some point, the vernacular for like regression test mm-hmm. became a thing. And we started writing tests to prevent regressions. Um, I never
0: made that that connection. It's you're trying to. We call it regression testing. And I was going, "What are you regressing to?" And you're saying, "No, it's to prevent regression." Yeah. Oh man.
1: Yeah. That's just clicked for me. All right. Yeah. I'm, so when I have a bug in something I've built, not always, but often. What I will do is write a test that fails in the current state of the Bug-ness. machine. Yeah, and then I fix the bug, and now hmm. the test passes. And that now is a regression test because if I ever accidentally reintroduce that same bug, that test is going to fail. Should be called anti-regression testing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. So so, oftentimes in in I would say mature development organizations, if you are fixing a bug, there better be a test that comes along with it. Mm-hmm. Uh as a tangent to this, I've I'm disappointed that the industry has not yet had a good way to to for somebody who's working on a bug fix to first submit the test and show, okay, this test shows that we have a bug because it is failing. And then update or whatever to show, all right, I now have submitted the bug fix and now the test is passing. Um, It's really the scientific concept of falsifiability. Right, exactly. And I've I've not seen people really do this. What usually happens is at the same time you submit the bug fix and the test, which doesn't give you the falsifiability, doesn't show you that, oh, the test proves that you actually fixed this bug. As In the development process, hopefully the developer actually like started with the test made sure, it, made failed. sure it failed and then fixed the bug and showed sure that it passed. Right, but, but that's I not see. expressed in the mm-hmm. tracking uh, in what they actually then contribute up. Uh, I suppose so you, you could do like a git bisect or you something. check the like bug this. in first. I mean the the test the in test first, it first then show but that then
0: it you're checking in a system that fails when you run the tests yeah so we're not supposed to do that
1: we're not supposed to do that I see well if you're doing it on a branch that is your own your own yes, branch then... but
0: but see what you want is for anybody to come along and go okay I'll check out the version with the test that demonstrates that this fails yeah and then I'll check out the next version which shows that it succeeds yeah. Yeah, so, so there's not repeatability, basically.
1: So I think you could do this with a Git bisect. Mm-hmm. Um, if, the, if you have a commit, it would require that you have a commit that has the test and a commit that has the fix as separate things. Mm-hmm. But with Git bisect, which I haven't used much, and it, everyone talks about how it's such a cool tool of Git, but what it allows you to do is apply a command to two different points in time and get history. Hmm. And so you can, um, you could run your, like, let's say when I make that commit with the, with the test, the failing test, I should be able to run, run it. Or when I make my commit that has both the test and the fix, I should be able to run those two tests. Like, like the system could run the test against the broken version and against the fixed version Mm -hmm. and report like, "Yay, you fixed the bug, but
0: yeah, um, well, I have our. T- I I feel like Git itself would probably need to be changed because the level, you know, I mean, there's get getting people on board with that yeah. might be hard, and and I think one of our listeners actually made the put in the question, why is testing like a second class citizen or an afterthought or whatever? So we're already struggling with that and then to say oh here let's do this get bisect thing i think it needs to be yeah. more mainstream exp- yeah. i mean all of that if it's important it needs to be in the mainstream because if it's not people will just default to whether the compiler allows their code to compile or not right yeah it's not we we haven't evolved to the point where the the bubble outside of the compiler is part of the whole you know development process yeah it's it's it, it there's a lot of people that just go back to well, I'll just
1: you know the compiler is the final arbiter of everything, and so if, it if did, they have a compiler, in the case of JavaScript, it's like, well, I pulled up the web page in my browser and it yeah, loaded and
0: that's true. did what
1: I thought I would, so right. <laughs> right exactly I'm good, <laughs> yeah, and
0: even though there are linting tools and things that's. You know, it doesn't, the linting tool doesn't prevent you from deploying the code if JavaScript doesn't work right or your compiler refuses it and actually
1: prevents you from deploying the code. Yeah. So we're not, you know. That's a good point is that you have to run the compiler to get to an artifact mm -hmm. that you can then run in compiled languages, but. And then linted if you all you have is a linter, there's no guarantees that you're actually gonna run the linter before you create the artifact mm-hmm. and deploy it.
0: Yeah, it's um it's it's unfortunate, but um but I think it's a learning process. I mean, it was a learning process I went through. Yeah, you know, thinking that oh well the compiler passed it, it must be good.
1: We're there never- are times where where I will make large changes and I only validate with a compile and this is because I have strongly relied on the type system to validate my program, mm-hmm. which works in some cases and doesn't work in other cases. Cause there are definitely places where logic needs to be tested and that can't be tested through types. Sure.
0: There's a, there's a boundary. There's a, well, I think this is the Goodell's incompleteness theorem because which basically says um, you, I mean, any system with a boundary can't be, um, can't be completely tested or can't be completely Mm. validated. You know, there's always an outside, there's always something bigger that the system is a subset of. And so um, it's, you know, like you go, Oh, the type system is great. Sure. It is great, but there's things that you can't, That's right. Test with it. I mean, and it's like, well, and you look at Python and you go, well, especially before it had the optional static typing, you go, oh, well, it's further over here on this spectrum. And all you're doing when you add like a lot of good type system stuff is you're moving the bar, but, you know, your function takes an argument that needs to be within a certain boundary. You have to test that, you know, your type system, Maybe some type systems would test that, but they might be going way overboard and they might be, they might make your both expressiveness and productivity um, greatly reduced. Yeah. And you have to take those into account. So it's, it's, the book already has a nickname, you know, because there are books that people refer to not by their title, but by their nickname. And yeah. so this will be the prep book. Yes, the prep book. Okay. You um, have
1: big plans. I, Interestingly, I have a project I'm working on, and the tests all usually work great locally. I, I think they always work great locally on my local machine. But in our mm-hmm. CI environment, tests will just randomly fail. Like I think a lot of people deal with flappy tests and is that I'm like, I don't know what's different about the, the test environment that we're running in, but something is different. Maybe it doesn't have as many CPU cores. And so maybe there's like different thread contention. Um, maybe uh, I, I have encountered bugs in concurrent systems where if you only have a single CPU, things get deadlocked. And mm-hmm. so maybe that's part of it, but it's been interesting to to have this, um, uh, Godel's, what's
0: Godel's incompleteness theorem. Yes. There's
1: a, there's
0: a book called Gödel, Escher Bach. Okay. And it explains kind of
1: a lot of the thinking and stuff and that the environment was, changes. Right. And that is a source of bugs and mm-hmm. lack of reliability because we, yeah. It, so what do you do when it works locally, but your continuous integration system says, ah, we're having failures. We added retries. Yeah, added retries. Okay. Yep. Which is I think the typical but unfortunate way that we often deal with flappy tests. It flappy? Is flappy. Is this a flappy. Is this an acronym flaps, for something? No, it just flaps like a flag in the wind. Just oh, okay. Sometimes passes, sometimes doesn't, sometimes passes, sometimes doesn't. So flappy tests. So um the typical way is you just add retries and you say, All right try this thing 10 times. And hopefully one of those 10 times is going to pass. I don't know how I feel about that. I know it just feels like the wrong, wrong way for sure. Yeah. Um I have to say, even on
0: some of my simpler things I've had, Oh, well book examples, but some of those were concurrency examples, but you know, and it would work on the continuous integration system. And then I'd be, you know, developing and doing things and put it up. And then it would give me this, you know, I get an email sometime later that I would notice I was like, something's not working. I'm going, ah, but it's working on my local machine. Why, why is this happening? And it, it could very well just be the, oh, well, you know, you, you've got the free one. So you're only getting one processor. And so concurrency
1: gets all bollocks up, but yeah. uh, Yeah and you just had an issue on your windows machine where something with your java ca certs was screwed up and was making things fail in some weird ways and just, that was just uh, yeah or, that was something with the um
0: permissions and so so gradle would try and go and it, it wasn't a gradle file but you'd get the error messages in gradle and and they would say things like cannot access this site i know the site is out there and yeah it's very mysterious and it's hit me a number of times over the years and i finally figured out oh yeah it's the ca certs file and they get out of sync for some reason or you you install a piece install of software that's that using java you and- may put it earlier in the path and then your java goes no that's not the right date i don't trust anything about yeah. that not going to download anything yeah. and but you, the error message isn't and it doesn't happen often enough and it's hard to reproduce that's the thing it's yeah. it's a it's an installation order issue i guess yeah anyway oh yeah that That's one of the few wins I've had in the last few weeks. yeah I have been stuck, yeah, so I think it now I think right. I've decided it's just um the existential crisis that comes from finishing a book you You leave this neatly ordered book world where you know what's coming and you know what the problems are to solve and everything, and then it ends, and now it's like, oh, what do I do with myself now? Yeah, start another book, but doesn't always. I don't, I think it's, I think it's inevitable. I think it's yeah, just
1: something I have to, to, to work through. I don't know what you did, but <laughs> I wrote the book. That's right. That's the, Your penance that's for the, writing a book is to have to write another book. I have to write another
0: book, but also to have to go through the existential angst of, of the time, the period between books when your brain has to disengage from one and engage
1: yeah. to the other. Yeah. So, um, we were talking about testing, I was mm-hmm. thinking about um, one of the evolutions in testing that I've seen that is pretty interesting and you you actually mentioned it um, or mentioned the need for it. The problem that it's solving is property-based testing. Um, property-based testing is this approach where, let's say you have a function that takes an int. And usually when you manually write tests, you're gonna like write a test that sends a one and a three or whatever to this function and you're gonna test the output of those things. With property-based testing, instead you say, "Okay, I have a function that takes an int, and the test framework will actually just throw a bunch of ints at it, and see what." And you you have to tell it um, how to kind of compute the result with any given value, but it'll throw a max negative int positive max int zero right it'll just in random so it just does this it doesn't do all the possible ints. it does Mm -hmm. some subset of those and you can write generators um and you can also like once
0: something has been tested it can put it well i can. it can put special values in a file to make sure that they get run and then I don't know. It it gets very smart. It's, it's some pretty clever generative testing. I, I know there's another name for it than just property based testing. I first saw it in Python. I don't think it necessarily originated there, but, but it got a lot of use in in there. And so it,
1: it like just strings are an interesting one where Mm. it, there's so many things that your code can get messed up on with strings, whether it's, utf-8 encoding or whether it's weird values empty strings whatever Mm -hmm. huge long strings and Mm -hmm. so um this is one place where i think reliability has been able to take another step forward on the process side is is by doing more complete testing rather than just the manual here's the values that i have manually encoded yeah and there's certainly i mean like most
0: websites you go on you go boy this could sure have used they they didn't think about this obvious case which i happen to have to type in and then yeah. it gives me and it doesn't yeah uh,
1: doesn't do the right thing yeah that's form handling should definitely use property-based testing
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah so
1: there are there
0: are a fair number of i mean i think the the fundamental idea of the and and i think those ideas came from the uh the pragmatic programmer they're the ones that said you know you got to have version control testing and automated build before yeah. you can do anything if you're not doing those that well in fact um somebody somebody was saying they could tell where an organization was by saying okay
1: So How do you do
0: these three things? And they go, if they, if they say, Oh, well, we don't do that for any of them. And it's, you know, surprising how many maybe don't have version control
1: or, well, you can probably correlate how well you do those things with how reliable your software is. (laughs) Yes. Well,
0: I mean, because they're so fundamental, they're like, Without those, you can't really do anything else. You can't do the refactoring or code evolution or anything yeah. like that because eventually it's going to bite you and you're going to get stuck. Yeah. So you you kind of have to have those things before you can do anything else. And and I think well, oh. this might have been when Barry was training. You know, he'd go in and figure out where they were, and say, "Oh, I see. You're not doing." version control. So that's what we're going to work on. Yeah.
1: Because it's pointless otherwise. Right. Yeah. You got to get the foundation mm-hmm. there so that you can build everything. Else. Yeah, move forward move and forward. and I think we're trying to look at it from uh
0: assume that's the case. Now we're going to look at actually how your code is constructed and how it works, which is the neglected part. Yes. Prep. Yes, the prep book. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm glad you think it's funny. Because <laughs> you just made it up. Just
1: made you it just, up. Yeah, it just was funny. words out of the air. Because
0: this article that you sent me uh, that I started reading where they were saying, oh, actually, object-oriented programming was a hack in Simula so that they could get their garbage collector to work easily. And I started thinking along those lines, and I thought, well, yeah, because to make a garbage collector work easily you want everything to you want all the pieces to look the same yeah how do you do that well i guess if we said that there was this base type <laughs> that everything was derived from then the garbage collector would just work with pieces of the base type oh yeah it would be simple and you could do reference counting on on those things and all yeah. okay let's do that and then I think we've been backfilling the ideas ever since then to go, ah, oh, look at this great shape example and the polymorphism and all that kind of stuff. And it may have all just come from somebody trying to hack
1: the lore of object-oriented programming, right? It's like, yeah, it was, we thought that this was needed for mm-hmm. some reason, which turns out to not be true.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just, no, we were just, we were just hacking to make the garbage collector easier. Yeah. And, and I mean, it fits in my head when I think about it that way. Although I don't necessarily know how you would go to inheritance from that. I mean, I think Simula had inheritance. I never really studied it. Yeah. It's very weird because a big center of Simula was UC Irvine. Oh. And I remember I was studying physics and engineering and stuff, but I was taking a few huh. computer courses and I remember hearing about Simula, and of course now I think, wow, I could have, yeah, could have been in on the the real ground floor back when I was there, huh? But, uh, yeah, where where OO was born. Well, I don't know. That it was born at Irvine. I I'm, I think it was all over. But I just know that they did a lot of work with it um, at the time, and it was super early, and it was like I think way over my head at the time. Yeah. So. But uh, who knows? Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Well, that's fun. Yep, I. We were experimenting with the boundaries of having less and less structure (laughs) (laughs) because this one, both of us kind of went in going, what do we?
1: Nothing happened to me for the last time. I didn't tweet anything interesting this week. The pipeline is empty. I don't. Yeah, I
0: I don't. I don't. I may have talked about all of the things at this point because I'm uh, I'm not being productive. (laughs) Well, I have a book for you. It's called Prep. Is it? I'll get you your star. Okay. Yeah. Well, that would feel productive if I achieved a
1: star. I don't know if it would actually be productive. Oh, it's just the NFT of a star. So Mm -hmm. okay. I can put it on a t-shirt. I don't know what you can do with NFTs. You could put it onto an NFT. A t-shirt, an NFT of a t-shirt. Sounds recursive. All right. All right. All right. That was fun.